The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Come in. You wanted to see me, Captain? Yes. I need a little history lesson. You told me the Vardwar were a culture of merchants and scientists who expanded their knowledge by using subspace corridors to travel to other worlds. You were the envy of hundreds of species, some of whom eventually wanted the corridors for themselves. Your point? Let me give you another version of events. The Vaudois were an aggressive culture who expanded their territory by using the corridors to attack other worlds. Until some of those worlds banded together to defend themselves and put an end to the Vaudois threat once and for all. Would you care to set the record straight? That was 900 years ago. If we're going to be fighting side by side, I have to trust you. I need to be certain you don't have any ulterior motives. Our only motive is survival. If I were to take you at your word, the ancient Talaxians might call me Badwar. Foolish. That's what they came to call anyone who allowed themselves to be deceived by an enemy. There are hundreds of other references just like it. Both versions of our history are true. And good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 9th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be And welcome to the show today, where I am honored and certainly pleased to be joined in the studio, not for the first, but for the second time, by none other than Toronto Sun columnist and UWO political department professor, Salim Mansour. Good morning, Salim. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. Nice to have you. And not only that, after, uh, in, in about 10 or 15 minutes, we are going to be joined by none other than Ezra Levant by phone from Calgary. And at that time, we'll be talking about his book, Shakedown. All this in conjunction with, by the way, an event that's coming up here in London on April 13th, 2009. It's being promoted by, the, or it's being held at the London City Music Theatre, which I believe is, a, is the former IMAX theatre, is it not? That's right. Yes. And that's 316 Rectory Street in London here. Uh, five bucks at the door. You can call 519-432-5264 for tickets. And at that event will be... Ezra Levant and uh, Salim Mansour and uh, and Kathy Shadle, who you might remember from having been on this show back here on January 29th. So we've got a full show today, to say the least, and we're talking about a number of issues. But first, I want to start off, Salim, with uh, some comments that uh, you had the last time I saw you spoke or speak publicly, and that was at the um, the event with Kathy Shadle when she was in town last. And at the end of that, you got into some very interesting big-picture viewpoints, and uh, you were you were somewhat concerned with perhaps 
how would I put it? Are we being deceived by our enemies in some way? Are we cooperating with them too too much? I, I see here in the in in the latest news news articles here, we see Obama starts reconciliation, in which Lisa Van Dusen argues that uh, he's done more in a week for peace with uh, the Middle East than uh, George Bush did in four years. Do you buy stuff like that? No, obviously not. Uh, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> uh, there is there is not much thought about it. This is all basically. Uh, sort of a rah-rah situation that is going on. Uh, I think we are in great trouble. What, what I was referring to um, that, that you are mm-hmm. recalling is, <coughs> is, is a thing that a number of writers have written about, um, including uh, French writers, um, uh, about how democracies are themselves vulnerable to being penetrated and undermined from inside. The very strength of democracies are its openness, its, and particularly democracies, which is also rule of laws, which is our democracy, Canadian democracy, British democracy, etc. Um, its strength is its openness, its inclusiveness, the rule of law, and then those strengths can be turned around. The very fact that it's open, the very fact there's a rule of law, the very fact that it's transparent, those can be used as a weapon to challenge the existing system and, and, and put the existing system under trial, which is what is happening with what, what uh, Ezra Levant has been writing about mm-hmm. in the book. We'll Sh- certainly be talking about that in uh, detail a little later uh, on. Precisely. Uh, and, and so then we have these frivolous and false cases that are taken up and pushed to basically bring slur and smear upon the very system of society that has given the greatest amount of freedom um, in our lifetime, in the modern world, in the creation of the modern world. This thought struck me, Bob, the other day, uh, that if we had the human right-type commissars running around uh, with effective power and they had prevailed at the time of Renaissance and Reformation, then Renaissance and Reformation might have been aborted well, because, because it was everybody was offending everybody else in terms of ideas, thoughts, speech, and so on and so forth. To say nothing of the experiences of Galileo and, and discoverers of his nature. But <laughs> now when you, say, when you say that, that, you know, this is always the bugaboo about freedom, isn't it? The catch-22, as, as it were. Precisely. When you say that we are an open society and that that leaves us vulnerable, that may lead some people to conclude, conclude that, therefore, we should not be an open so- society. We should have more barriers, more checks at the border. And it sounds a lot like how our governments are responding to the problem. Are they doing the right things Well, in, okay, that, res- uh, in, re- in that respect? I suppose you're re- referring to the Galloway situation, and that's, that's, that's a whole different topic. But let's get back to the, the earlier point that you're, ma- you're making, or I was making, that the very strength of an open society also at time its vulnerability is weakness. You know, yep. Karl Popper, the great uh, uh, Hungarian-born English philosopher of the last century, wrote about open society and its enemies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the enemies. We, we cannot bar anybody from participating in the public square. I mean, the, this radio program that you're holding is a public square. And if you're going to maintain the principle of an open society, the open society welcomes the arguments, and you engage with everybody, including the people who are the enemies of open society in the terms of Karl Popper's famous statement. Um, no, you don't, you don't close it down because that's exactly what it is. I mean, the open society, and, and so long it remains open and so long it is vigilant and so long debates take place, then that is itself 
the weapon of defeating its enemies, though the enemies will try to use that weapon to defeat the open society. But the moment you start putting barricades and you start closing off the discussion, you can't putting the debate. That is exactly what the enemies want, because then we are moving in the direction of the enemy society, that so well, the, the, the society which the enemies of the open society would like to construct. Yes, when I was speaking of barriers, I was thinking a little more literally. I was thinking just literally of what they're doing at the border, slowing everybody down. We now need Canadian pass or, or America, Canadian passports, yes, to get into America, which hadn't been our history for 200 years. And, and uh, it seems to me that everything we're doing to fight this kind of, uh, you know, fear-based um, threat to our society is almost cooperating with the enemy, isn't, isn't it really, in a way? Don't, well, don't, don't people who are used to that kind of environment work better in it than we do? We're a free people. Well, I mean, uh, life is a paradox, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and as I say, life is not only a paradox. We live in a world which is an imperfect world where we're constantly making imperfect choices. The point that you are referring to is about nation-states. You know, nation-state is not a recent construction. It is with us for the last 300, 400 years. And, and that's the making of the modern world. Canada is a state, but we are a sovereign state. And as a sovereign state, we, the Canadian people, have the right to decide who is going to come inside Canada, who's not going to come inside Canada. The question is whether Canada remains an open society. Uh, and it, then it is the people of Canada, the Canadians are going to decide how they are going to min min keep and maintain it as an open society. So in, in maintaining the traffic into and out of Canada, that is a con collective decision of the Canadian people uh, arrived at democratically. That's what we call the rule of law. And once we have the rule of law, we have systems by which those rule of laws are implemented, enforced, and also judicated and judged whether it works or doesn't work. Uh, so I have no problem with that. What I have problem with is the construction of mechanisms in place, institutions in place. Today's discussion is Human Rights Commission right. that is empowering them to tell us what we should speak, how we should speak, which means effectively how we should think, what should we think, and how we should articulate ourselves in communicating with each other. That is in the matter of ideas, in the matter of the realm that goes to the very heart of what makes a society. That sort of policing force is redundant and, in fact, is the great danger to an open society. Well, I, w I would agree with you wholeheartedly. In fact, I would say that the thing that defines a free <coughs> society is the right of its citizens to disagree peaceably Absolutely. among each other. What happens when those agreements are no longer peaceable? What happens when a person is actually advocating uh, the destruction of someone else or a complete group or um, uh, is that still, in your way of looking at things, um, free speech? Uh, I mean, I individuals can say bizarre things, and, and, and bizarre things can be as bizarre or as hateful as advocating the destruction of another group of people. Let it be said, the question is when somebody acts upon what is being said. It is not the question, I mean, you know, the... the that, that's what I'm waiting to hear, <laughs> because to me, that's the dividing line. You Precisely. just hit it right I there. Mean, the, the bogeyman is uh, what, what, what these people say, you cannot call uh, a fire in a crowded theater. That's a, that's a wrong argument. Argument. That argument was never made. You cannot falsely cry fire in a crowded theater. Correct. You know, and, 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 and that an word, when falsely is dropped, the whole meaning changes. In fact, if there's a fire in a theater and you, and you fail to announce Fe it, you could be held responsible for, for that. For negligence. Um, yes. Exactly. Um, but 
Okay, now we've def you decide that that's the dividing line that when you act. What if someone explicitly says they're going to take action uh, against you or it's believed that they're? That's kind of what happened with Bush and, and Iraq. It was sort of, quote, preemptive. Mm -hmm. um, was that a justified action? You think that got us into more trouble in the long run because all of this is stemming from you know events of 9/11 and okay, what led up Okay, you're raising an issue that cannot be answered in you know. I'm not expecting you to answer <laughs> precisely <no>. 15 <laughs> seconds, and I think that's been the great problem of the media. Media mm -hmm. raised very very difficult and complex issue, and then have pinned the pro you know blame on people like Bush. Well, for example, uh, so no, uh, uh, the short answer is no. Bush was not wrong. In fact, in fact, what Bush has did has saved the situation in the Middle East. Now we Obama has to deal with one country that is trying to acquire weapon of mass destruction. Right. Nuclear weapon that is Iran, and not two, which which would have been if Saddam Hussein would have been around, and a third country that has a nuclear weapon and is in the process of disintegrating, and we wouldn't know where those nuclear weapons are going to go. That is Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So by eliminating, removing uh, Saddam Hussein, bringing about a regime change, and and launching Iraq in the direction of a democratic society, Bush had left behind a very important legacy. Now, it's interesting because it seems to me that Barack Obama is picking right up on that legacy, exactly, isn't he? Because here he says, uh, again, um, everybody's talking about Barack Obama's pronouncement to the Turkish parliament that the United States is not at war with Islam. Now, Bush repeated oh, that, that, that same that statement over and over and over precisely, again. Precisely, and th that's exactly what is the, the atrociousness or, 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 or the silly argument of these people. It's, uh, there, wasn't, there was no war with, with, with the world of Islam or with, with Muslims. Mm -hmm. I mean, Abdullah came to uh, Crawford, Texas on several occasions. That is King Abdullah. So, so, so by the way, and, and, and you have Barack Obama bowing and curtsying to this man. He is the head of the United States. He's the head of the state. And no head of state should bow and curtsy to another uh, a monarch or another head mm. of state. And that's what, what, what Obama was doing. So he's sort of, would you say he's appeasing the other side in a, in a harmful way? More than appeasing. I think over time we are seeing his actual character come out. Because uh, it's, why do you think people believe him when he says we're not at war with Islam more than they ever believe? Because Bush? people want to. I mean, that's again which people you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, I you guess. Know? And, and, and so which people you want to believe? <laughs> I, I, guess mean, that's that's true. I mean, even the no November 2008 election was a 53-48 split. Right. So there, you know, I am part of the 48. <laughs> well, listen, we're going to take a, a quick break now, and when we come back. Hopefully we'll have our guest with us, Ezra Levant, on the other side of this. So a quick break for a smile and a setup for our next guest. Well, how do we feel about Americans here, folks? That's a good question. <laughs> Ron, we've been through this. All right, sir, no more questions. I'm just saying, Americans make me proud to be Canadian, quite frankly. Huh? In comparison. Oh, yeah. Get back, folks. Sure. We're the loved people on this planet. We, we're welcome anywhere. I can go to Lebanon, play tourists, take pictures of blown up buildings, they grab me, throw me in a car. You are a prisoner of that terrorist group? Hey, I'm a Canadian. Canadian? You know my cousin Abibi drives taxi in Toronto, you know? <laughs> Here, take picture of you. hold gun, go ahead. Take picture of me with gun. I look scary for your friends. Uh, good to be a Canadian, that's all I'm saying. Admiral, if you don't mind, there is something I would like to say. 
If you have a statement, you'll have an opportunity to make it later. I believe that Chapter 4, Article 12 of the Uniform Code of Justice grants me the right to make a statement before questioning begins. Very well. I'm deeply concerned about what is happening here. It began when we apprehended a spy, a man who admitted his guilt and who will answer for his crime. But the hunt didn't end there. Another man, Mr. Simon Tarsis, was brought to trial. And it was a trial, no matter what others choose to call it. A trial based on insinuation and innuendo. Nothing substantive offered against Mr. Tarsis, much less proven. Mr. Tarsis' grandfather is Romulan. And for that reason, his career now stands in ruins. Have we become so fearful? Have we become so cowardly that we must extinguish a man because he carries the blood of a current enemy? Admiral, let us not condemn Simon Tarsis or anyone else because of their bloodlines, or investigate others for their innocent associations. I implore you, do not continue with this proceeding. And welcome back to the show. And my next guest is Ezra Levant, live from Calgary. Are you there, Ezra? I am. Thanks for having me on the show. How are you doing today? Very well, thanks. I, uh, uh, anytime I hear Captain... Uh, uh, Jean-Luc Picard talk about uh, freedom. I'm uh, ready to get my lightsaber out, I guess. Isn't that something, though? Because, uh, you know, it's kind of depressing if you think about it that we're still going to have these kangaroo courts around in uh, the, the wonderful future world of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, you know? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, for those of you who don't know or haven't heard of Ezra Levant, I can't believe it, but he was the publisher of Western Standard magazine, and when he was, he was charged by the government of Alberta for publishing the Danish cartoons of Mohammed. He's a frequent talk show guest known for his plain spoken opinions, and he's written columns for media as diverse as the Calgary Sun and Canadian Lawyer. He's written three non-fiction books, Youthquake, Fight Kyoto, and The War on Fun. That sounds really interesting. I have to check that one out. And his blog, EzraLevant.com, was voted Best Canadian Blog in the 2008 Weblog Awards. In January of last year, of course, he was summoned to appear before an Alberta Human Rights Commission interrogation as a consequence of his reprinting of uh, the Danish cartoons depicting Muslim prophet Muhammad to illustrate a news story. And as he notes on the jacket of his new book, and this is kind of weird, as crazy as it sounds, I became the only person in the world to face legal sanction for printing those cartoons. Is that true? You're the only one? I've since heard that someone in Belarus, a Stalinist uh, country, might have had some legal problems too, but I, I have to confirm that. But no one in Denmark, no one anywhere in Europe, no one anywhere in the Arab world, and certainly no one in North America uh, got into any legal trouble for it. And that's what's so incredible to me is that, I mean, I thought Canada was one of the freest countries in the world, yet weirdly... This is the only place that had a 900-day investigation. That's what, when I, when I was interrogated, I was called downtown by the Human Rights Commission and grilled for 90 minutes about my 
reasoning and my thinking and my religious and political views. I recorded it on a videotape and I uploaded it to YouTube and 700,000 people have watched those clips and the reason such a otherwise boring video would be so popular is, I mean, if you turn the sound off, it's completely boring, just three people sitting in a room <laughs> talking. But if you turn the sound on, it's stunning. It's, it's a government agent asking a journalist to explain his political views. That's something we associate with Iran or China or maybe a bad Saturday Night Live skit, but that's not Canadian. That's why Canadians, I think, have been so interested in this story, and that's why my book, I think, has done so well, is people can't believe what's been going on in the name of human rights. It is an excellent book, by the way. I... Uh I was a little depressed by it at first because I kind of I've been through that experience with an Ontario Human Rights Commission as a representative of a local landlord here once, but as I got into the book, I found uh, it was just overwhelming with all the details and insights you you had. Uh, it just brought back a lot. But here's an interesting question for you. I, I I look at the endorsements on the back of the book, and I see there um, Mark Stein, who, who of course wrote the foreword to the book, uh, Rick Mercer. Father Raymond D'Souza of the National Post, David Warren of the Ottawa Citizen, Peter Worthington of the of the Toronto Sun, and I'm I'm sure this would include myself and uh, uh, my guest here, Salim Mansour, who you could say hi to here. He's right here, ready to talk to you. Hi there, Salim. We'll see you in, uh, on the 13th in London. Yeah. Hi, Ezra. <laughs> but um, you know, if uh, if someone were a cynic, they might say, "Well, look, all these people are in the media." You know what I mean? Maybe, uh, is this a self-interested group just looking after themselves, or is there a broader issue uh, transcending? That's a great point. I mean, journalists are very sensitive to free speech because it's how they practice their business. Of course. But yeah. I, there's something else I'd like to point out about that list. It's from the left and the right. I mean, Rick Mercer is no hardcore right-winger, but he understands that free speech is for everyone. If you crack down on a... Um, conservatives free speech it'll be a liberal next but here's the point that i get at in the book only two percent of human rights cases involve freedom of speech the other 98 percent involve people who are just going about their business so for any listeners who say well i won't get in trouble because i won't do anything provocative like publishing cartoons that offend some people i mind my own business i don't even talk in public well 98% of people who get caught in human rights commissions are just like that. Let me give you a crazy example from Ontario. I mean, you probably know the case out of uh, Burlington, Gator Ted's Pub, a guy just running a neighborhood pub, not looking for trouble, pretty popular guy, Ted Kindos was his name. Well, a guy who has a license to smoke medical marijuana decided he wanted to smoke it in Gator Ted's Pub and irritate all the customers, and Gator Ted threw him out. Well, he took Gator Ted to the Human Rights Commission that's been investigating him for years now. And he's caught on the horns of a dilemma because if he kicks this guy out, he's sued by the Human Rights Commission. But if he doesn't kick him out, he'll lose his liquor license. I mean, what did he do to deserve that? Here's another case from Ontario. In St. Catharines, there's a women's only gym. Well, a guy presented and said, I'm a woman, or I'm going to be at least once I get my surgery. I want you to let me into the women's locker room. If that would have happened 50 years ago, he would have been ran out of town and said to your guy, you can't go in the women's locker room. Well, no, the Human Rights Commission is suing the St. Catherine's gym owner because they say, well, if this guy says he's a girl, he's a girl. I mean, I, these cases sound absurd, but they're, they're actually terrifyingly normal 
in human rights commissions. And my point of saying this is, yeah, journalists squawk about it when it's our free speech that's under attack. But what about severely normal people, like the the owner of this club or this, the, the gym or the owner of this bar? It's going after everybody. Well, Ezra, you know, uh, this is Salim coming in. Uh, I, I have written about you, Ezra, that you are... Uh, both Alfred Dreyfus and Emily Zola roll into <laughs> one. I mean, you're you're, <laughs> you're the guy who was falsely accused for all that you have gone through, and then you are the guy who have become the great warrior and you know uh, the marshal of pulling together all of us little people right across the country uh, in defense of freedom in the, in in in, uh, in our country. Uh, uh, that's that's remarkable. But of course, you never wanted to be any of that. You know, I mean, I'm also reminded that you are you are the guy. You know that perfectly fits. Uh, Shakespeare's bill, you know, uh, greatness thrust upon it, and you, 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 you're the guy who's been uh, thrust upon this position. So how, how is all of this coming along with you in your personal life? As I mean, uh, it, it, has it been very disorienting the last few months, or have you, have you been able to maintain some sort of balance in, in all of this? Well, I appreciate things? that, and, and, and thanks for your kind words. You know, there's a, just to get to your point about a lot of people banding together, there's an idea, uh, it's a book by... Uh, um, Glenn Reynolds of Instapanda.com called Army of Davids. And he says the Internet has allowed hundreds, even thousands of ordinary people to band together and to take down a big Goliath, whether the Goliath is a government agency or, or a company. The power of the Internet brings lots of ordinary folks together, and that's what happened here. As to my own case, over the last year and a half, when it's really uh, the lawsuits and the human rights complaints have piled on, there were some moments when I was stressed, but I was never stressed out about the fight. I have to say, I sort of enjoy the fight. I feel like it's it's the right thing to do, and we've, we're on the, the side of justice, and we've got lots of facts and other ammo. Sometimes the stress has been there for the legal build, because I, I have three human rights complaints, four defamation lawsuits, and about 14 law society complaints. I'm a lawyer, and every time I call these human rights commissions, kangaroo courts. <laughs> Someone in the Human Rights Commission filed a law society complaint saying I should be disbarred. So I've, I've had to fight over 20 lawsuits. That's a lot of legal bills. That's what caused me stress. But again, the army of David's banding together on the internet has chipped in to pay my legal fees. So with that taken care of, I've been able to fight like a happy warrior, I guess. And that's made all the difference in the world. If, if this was before the age of the internet, when people felt comfortable before people felt comfortable donating 10 bucks or 20 bucks over yeah. over the paypal i don't know how i could have done it so because i don't know how i would have been able to fight all these lawyers you have you have done amazingly well you know and you've given fired the imagination of many of younger generation and that's great and i see some of that among my students as well i must let you know what one other quick question as well um uh, having read your book and and some of the characters that have come across and i hope we'll get a chance to talk about them in another venue but here, here it is, I mean, the thought uh, that, that plagues my mind. Um, what we are struggling for is that, that there should be a real court, a real lawyers, real judges, and, and so on and so forth. What the people who, who were basically prosecuting you, you know, you, putting you through this inquisition, were they real lawyers, Ezra? Um, well, there were lawyers involved. Um, in fact, the, I think my interrogator actually was a lawyer, now that I think about it. In fact, I'm pretty sure she was, Shirlene McGovern. Um, and uh, some of the people interrogating me were lawyers, some were bureaucrats. There were about 15 people working on my case altogether. But here's the thing. When human rights commissions have a formal hearing, it's never in front of a judge. 
it's usually in front of a lawyer, but those lawyers are not neutral. As you know, when someone becomes a judge, they can't be a member of a political party, they can't uh, express a, a public bias on things. Even if they had been in their previous life, they had, uh, aligned to that date, they have to really go out of their way to be neutral, and they have to apply the law neutrally. The people who run human rights commissions are anything but neutral. Again, I point to your own example in Ontario of Barbara Hall, the head of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, who's a crusading radical, frankly. I mean, she would admit that herself. I mean, she's a very left-wing activist, and she loves it. I mean, she was thrown out as the mayor of Toronto because she was too much for that town, but she's got the perfect job now. She can be a politician all she likes, but but not have to win any votes. But Ed, Compare that to our Supreme Court, right. which, which is extremely circumspect in what they say publicly. Edward, what, what, what I want to get a sense, sense of, so that for, for the listeners out there too, is a, a, a real lawyer in a real law court dealing with real laws cannot simply keep on inventing laws as they prosecute somebody. Um, you're you're uh, exactly right. I mean, let me just give you a, a quick example of, uh, well, I mean, there's so many things that are made up on the fly in these human rights commissions. Even my interrogation, they said I can have, even though it was both me and the magazine that were charged with his hate speech, we were only allowed one lawyer, not two, which, I mean, since when is that a rule? Um, I was allowed to video it, but no journalists were allowed inside. Since when is that a rule? Uh, no one else from the magazine was allowed, not the editor at the time, Kevin Lippin. I was the publisher. I mean, there was some, they just made it up as they went along. And, you know, anyone who watches Law and Order on TV right. has a basic sense of how justice works. I mean, we're a little bit different than America, but we're fairly similar. You don't have to be a lawyer to, to watch one of these show trials and say, what's that? That's not a trial. That's not Canadian justice. Right. And, and so I've tried to expose how nutty these commissions are yeah, yeah, so uh, the Canadians realize... Go ahead. Ezra, Ezra do you think, uh, after uh, your experience in Mark Stein and McLean's, do you think a, any human rights commission is now going to have uh, the audacity to bring uh, anyone else uh, on, on similar charges of uh, hate speech, uh, Section 13? Yes, I do. And, and in fact, I had some news out of Ottawa just last week that, they, that the Human Rights Tribunal um, had ruled against the Human Rights Commission. They were going after a former member of Part 1 named Jim Pankew. And Pankew had uh, sent some uh, letters. He was an MP who sent some letters to his constituents that talked about Aboriginal crime, which is a big issue in Saskatchewan. The Human Rights Commission took him through this hearing for five years, and they lost. Well, now they're appealing. They want another shot at him. Now, it's under a slightly different section, but it's the same thing. It's hate speech. And, you, you know, they're not going to stop Selim until, uh, until we take the power away from them by changing the laws. I mean, so, maybe they'll, they'll go so, after... So, hold on, Ezra. You, are, you yeah. are the lawyer. Explain this to me, Ezra. Um, yeah. the, 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 in, in the real world of law, court, judge, judges, and lawyers... Uh, we we have this situation with uh, uh, abortion laws, for instance, and and they, uh, we don't have any laws, as I understand it right now, in the books because the parliament won't enact one or hasn't ha come around to enacting one. But the old laws were thrown out because there was no jury in the country that is going to uh, indict in uh, Morgenthau. Uh, isn't that what we are faced with now? I mean, uh, th that your case and and McLean and and uh, Mark Stein case has shown the redundancy of section. 13, and so unless there is a decision, Section 13 should go into abeyance. Isn't that, would be a correct interpretation, or, or my understanding of it as a layman? 
Well, if I had a, the right to a jury, I would be fearless because no uh, Canadian jury would convict me for publishing a magazine, but I don't have the right to a jury. Again, I would appear not even in front of a judge, but in front of one of these appointed radical activists like Barbara Hall. There's 14 of these commissions across Canada. I would appear before the radical activists in Alberta, and I would lose. But even, a radical, a, but even a radical activist in a country like ours, Canada, an open, free, democratic society, a rule of law-based society, has to have a respect that their Section 13 has been thrown out, or they themselves have thrown it out. Well, And so they cannot um, bring it against, say, Salim Mansour. You would think they would have that respect, but look, it's become an industry, Salim. I mean, $200 million a year is spent by taxpayers on these 14 commissions. There's a thousand people who make their living this way, and just because you and I don't like it doesn't mean they're going to stop enforcing this law. That's why we have to have the politicians take the power away from them. Well, well, I wanted to go through this this exchange to establish that we don't have the Human Rights Commission. is totally a kangaroo court. It has no respect for anything. Uh, absolutely. Listen, we, ha- we have to take a break right now, Ezra. And when we come back after this, we'll continue yeah. with this discussion. i got an interesting question for you about uh, whether you see yourself as a victim or an opportunist taking an, an advantage of the situation. <laughs> but we'll look at that when we come back after a couple of breaks here and a few important messages. And we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hello, my little knuckleheads. Hello. I am so happy to be here. Now, I know everybody says that, but when I say I'm happy to be here, I mean I'm happy to be here in Canada. Yes, it's okay. I'm an immigrant, okay? I moved here. I took the citizenship exam. It was really hard. (laughs) It was not hard at all. Um, (laughs) But I have to tell you, as an ex-lawyer, expatriated American, ex-Catholic, Italian, lesbian with ADD, Canada was pretty much the only place that would take me, okay? My last girlfriend, she was a feminist. And I have nothing against feminists, but she was an over-the-top feminist. She was one of these women that wants to change every word every phrase that has man in it. I guess you could call her a whoop. <laughs> she kept coming out to me all the time, just bitching and complaining, you know? Why do they call it a manhole cover? Why do they call it a male man? Why do they call it a man-made lake? <laughs> I go, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I know why they call it a lady bug. And welcome back to the show where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to talk to my guests today, Ezra Levant, live from Calgary by phone and in studio. I'm with Salim Mansour, Toronto Sun columnist, talking about Canada's human rights commissions. Ezra, just before the break, I was just uh, hinting at my next question here. I remember when Kathy Shadle was on the show, she was telling us an interesting story about how she almost got frantic when she first uh, was served with notice that she had to appear before a human rights commission. I guess your reaction was a little different, was it? Well, when I first got the human rights complaint, I thought, okay, I understand what's going on here. They're just going through the motions because they want to show that they're, you know, 
I, I don't know. I thought they were just going through the motions. So I, I wrote a very polite five-page letter to the Human Rights Commission saying, okay, I get it. You're just following through to show due diligence, but this is why this is completely inappropriate for you. This is why it has no basis in law. This is why you shouldn't do it. And if you do go ahead, it'll actually hurt your reputation. So I, when I look at that letter today, I can't believe how polite I was, but I was also prescient. I wrote in that letter, if you pursue, pursue me for something that's so clearly not a human rights offense, it'll actually hurt your reputation, and indeed it has. And they, <clears throat> I mean, people sometimes say, oh, Ezra, you're loving this fight so much. Well, you know what? I decided to turn lemons into lemonade and be happy about it and fight and, and, and turn the tables, and, and, and I've done my best to do that. But I did try very hard to make this go away without a fight in that first five-page letter that I sent to them, but they wouldn't because, frankly, they need work. I mean, human rights commissions are in trouble in Canada because we get along so well here. And that's why 15 people were put on my case for almost three years. I was a make-work project. I was a one-man stimulus program for bureaucrats and lawyers. And I told them, don't fight with me. Don't fight with me. Go away. They wouldn't. So I fought with them, and I won. And I'm going to keep fighting, actually, even though I'm free now myself, because I think we ought to shut these commissions down and I'm sort of on a roll now. I'm not going to stop. I, I, I offered them a ceasefire three years ago. They said no. I'm, I'm pleased to hear, hear you say that, that you're, you're into shutting the commissions down entirely, because that's certainly been my stance on the issue. Um, given that conclusion, uh, th there's, there's one little thing that made me uncomfortable in reading your book. And I don't know if, it was, uh, if it's a big thing or not. But... And it's not just your book, but other people making the same argument. You get this, uh, this sense from people, well, Canadians have this tradition of uh, believing in freedom of speech and open, and open discussion and everything. I think that may be true of Canadian people, per se. I think in the sense of life, everyone has that feeling that, yes, I have a right to freedom of speech. But if I were to look at the history of Canada as a country, I don't see that tradition there. And I'll give you a few examples of what I mean. Um, for example, the tradition of this country, w when I grew up, um, sexually explicit m material was completely banned. Today you can get it practically on TV, stuff you had to be 18 years old uh, to get into a theater. Uh, we've got official bilingualism laws. We have uh, CRTC, which regulates Canadian content and multiculturalism. We've got a CBC that spends billions on annual propaganda machine. We've Here in Ontario, we had the infamous uh, Carla Homolka publication ban after a trial was completed, and uh, it got OPP uh, officer Gordon Dom involved here with all sorts of problems with the law because he published information. We've had crime comics, of all things in our criminal code, section 159.1, since ever I remember. Blasphemy is still on, on the books. Uh, that's the first thing they tell us about when we come in a radio station. Watch out for section 260-1. We've got the censor board. We've got metric measurement laws. We've got political books seized at the customs all the time. Advertising, lifestyle regulation, rock lyrics, regulation of political advocacy during elections, regulation of political parties. Uh, you know, I think the idea of freedom of speech is really, really new. I don't know if it's a tradition, do you, politically anyway. Do you, do you, what do you think about that? Well, you've got a, a big list of things oh, there, sure. and I'd agree, with you, I'd agree with you on most of them. I mean, there are too many limits on freedom of speech, but, I, but we have... The, the same great history of, as the states going back all the way to the UK. Free speech is an ancient right. You know, it was back in 1835, I think, 
that Joseph Howe, who would later go on to be the premier of Nova Scotia, um, was charged with seditious libel for for writing something in his newspaper criticizing the government. It was a huge trial, and he won. And that was, I would call that, in, in back in 1835, the great moment in Canadian freedom of speech. And obviously, like any freedom, you've got to fight for it in every generation because it's encroached upon. Sometimes the rules make sense. For example, the laws against forgery or fraud actually limit free speech, official secrets acts. But, but I think we could agree that those are reasonable. Some of the other things you I, mentioned I, I, aren't I, reasonable. I wouldn't even put those in the freedom of speech um, category. I don't even think they belong there. Uh, right, well, they, but they do limit expression. I'm, I'm just giving an extreme example that we would all agree with you know, the laws against fraud or impersonating someone. That those, are, those are good laws. Well, no one ever has a right to harm another person. I think that's a, a broader principle. But, you know, when I think about it, if we want to say, and I agree with you, this is a goal I share, I'm sure Salim shares this, and you share it, we want to get rid of these human rights commissions, but we're living in a country where they haven't even got rid of crime comics in the, in, in, in the, in the criminal code, which literally would make technically an episode of Columbo being aired on the air illegal because it shows the depiction of a crime, even though it's for, for fiction. Um, right, well, a lot of those know, laws on the books haven't been used in decades. For example, But that, that's my point, they never go away. Someone can always well, use them when they want to, can't they? Right, but, the, I mean, here's an example. Ernst Zundel was charged with uh, spreading false news. He went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they threw it out. Now, some would say, well, if it wasn't in the, uh, in the criminal code in the first place, he would never have been hassled, and that's correct. But I think it would be very unusual to have that blasphemy law enforced, although, in a way, that's really what I was put through. I was, in effect, charged with blaspheming against uh, Islam, and and look, you you got to be on guard all the time because there's always someone, usually in the government, who thinks that for our own good, we shouldn't be able to say something or to hear something. And there's no easy solution. There's no final victory in the battle for freedom. It's just every generation you've got to fight for. It. Uh, I agree. It's it's eternal vigilance. Certainly, you know, I'm reminded if this weren't the internet age. Um, I think, in a way, what the Human Rights Commissions are trying to do is almost carry on a Canadian tradition. Um, for example, I, I know that Section 164, which deals with Canada Post in the mails, that everyone commits an offense for distributing obscene, indecent, immoral, or scurrilous material, which easily your copies of Western Standard with the cartoons and it might have fallen into that category. So maybe that's how they would have dealt with the issue in the past, and they're just carry, trying to bring it into the electronic age with these human rights commissions and censoring the Internet. Well, and, but that's the wonderful thing about the Internet, is try censoring something in this era. I mean, George Galloway, exactly, yeah. uh, he was kept out, uh, I mean, this story got lost in the news coverage, but he was kept out for security reasons. Basically, he was fundraising for the terrorist group called Hamas. But he said, oh, it's for my freedom of speech. And look what he did. He turned it into a week-long PR bonanza. I mean, I think he, he twisted the facts. I mean, he, he was told before he came over why he was being kept out, and he was offered a chance to rebut it, but that's not the point. Look at what he did. He managed to get so much attention, and that's the thing about censoring, is in the age of the Internet, in the age of video links and um, cell phones and text messages and, and the amazing communications technology we have, you just can't censor somebody, and so it's such a fool's errand to try. In fact, all that happens is you make a star out of the person you're trying to censor. Look at David Ahanekew. He's a 70-something Indian chief from Saskatchewan that no one who was listening would ever have heard of before, except for that he was put on trial for five years for 
uh, for saying something that was anti-Semitic, and in the end he was acquitted. Well, look, no one listened to him before other than his grandkids who were forced to, but he became a national celebrity because we prosecuted him. We should have just left him alone, or if someone really Same, same thing with Zundel in cases like that before the Internet, too. That's right. I mean, if you don't like these people, rebut them or ignore them or or do something positive and constructive and citizen-like, but to run to the cops and say arrest him, that's always going to backfire. Ezra, what, what was so bizarre, and, and, and I'd like your comments on this, is that uh, your experience was with one man, Sayyid Sarwardi, who contended that uh, you and Western Standard had in some way uh, I, I, I missed the exact word, but you had offended him in some sort of way, and, and he was offended, and, and there he brought the complaint. And what's so bizarre about it is that one man's offense on the question of Islam, since it, that's the subject matter, Danish cartoon, would, be, would go through the, what they went through with you when, you know, there's over 1.5 billion people. The Muslims are not a monolithic, uh, mindless heard of people and I was writing for your magazine and I've been a friend of yours and I'm not offended I, that was a new story and it must be shown and must be seen so how how was this matter ever brought out in the discussion and in, in, in the human rights tribunal with you yeah I mean I pointed out to my interrogator that not all Muslims share his view I pointed out that we ran letters from Muslims for and against what we did. And I pointed out that in, in the actual original story talking about the cartoons, we had a, a, a small uh, side story that showed that uh, an ancient Muslim mosaic, a Shiite mosaic, depicting Correct. Mohammed. So we showed that, in fact, some uh, Muslim denominations have no problem depicting uh, Mohammed. But, but those... Uh, but you see, that's a ridiculous thing to have to argue to the government. I mean, you shouldn't have to argue to the government that you were reasonable in your journalism. I mean, all those arguments are something that fit on a talk show, trying to convince people well, why well, it's a good idea. What but it seemed to, to me, the government, what it seemed to me that these guys put you through 900 days of a discussion and cult cultural anthropology, not law. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing, is since when is the government an arbiter of yeah. what good journalism is? If William Shakespeare himself came back from the dead right. and told me I didn't have the legal right to publish those cartoons, I'd disagree with him. I mean, if he came back and debated me and gave me literary criticism, I'd accept it as a free man, but right. not if he had the power of the state to censor me. I don't care about the, some bureaucrat's opinion about the history or politics. I don't care about that. Well, it goes beyond history and politics. It goes even into comedy. Now, we're going to take a quick break for a smile, and when we come back after that, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things you mentioned in your book about comedy that actually interested me. And we'll be sure. back right after this quick break. And just for the record, folks, I need to let you guys in on a secret. Indian people, we know what we sound like. You know what I mean? We know what the accent sounds like. We don't actually need you to remind us, all right? We know it's not a cool accent. You know what I mean? You're never going to see two Indian guys in a club going, Hey, man, don't we sound cool? We know what it sounds like, but we know the Indian accents limitations you know we know what it's good for what it's not good for you know it's not good for meeting women we know that you know it's not going to help you in a club hello baby <laughs> you're not going to get any action but you know what the indian accent is good for cutting tension you got a tense situation pop in the indian accent 
Tension's gone. Picture a serious courtroom drama. Your Honor, my client would like to plead guilty. Thank you very much, Montreal. Good night. stories? Tiger Woods gets offended because Fuzzy Zeller makes a joke about black people liking fried chicken. Oh my god, Carlos, I was offended and I am Tiger Woods. Well, you're a little that's what you are. Making 40 million dollars a year and getting offended at a joke? White people give Carlos 40 million dollars a year. There ain't jack you could say to piss me off. Even in Canadian money, I'd still be happy. And welcome back to the show. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. Joined in studio by Salim Mansour and on the line by Ezra Levant. Hello, Ezra. Hi. Um, you have on page 91 a fascinating comment, speaking of comedy, in fact. And uh, I just want to quote you here. This is from page 91. Uh, quote, Comedy is one of society's safety valves, something we use to discuss touchy subjects we aren't comfortable dealing with otherwise, including race, sex, religion, and sexual orientation. That's why humorless folks with a totalitarian outlook, intolerant religious zealots, and hyper-tolerant human rights thought police alike are so suspicious of comedy. Um, that's a fascinating statement. Do you want to elaborate on that a bit? Well, look, comedy involves telling things like it is and, and trying to... You know, just what we heard there, Russell uh, making fun of his own family's accent. I mean, yes, I, you know, I, I could get in trouble with Salim here over that one, too, you know? That's just the kind but of... But, it, but he dealt with it in a fun way. Everyone laughed. He was laughing with himself. I mean, I, I think it's how a lot of ethnic groups actually... I mean, if you look at a lot of comedians, they almost always poke fun at their own race or religion. I mean, Jews certainly do. Lesbian comedians, Sandra Oh. You know, I mean, but, mm -hmm. a, lo uh, a lot of uh, race and religion comes out through comedy, and it's a great way of dealing with it. But comedy is subversive. Remember Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Nobel Prize-winning Russian author, he was sentenced to eight years of hard labor in the gulag for telling a joke, a joke about Joe Stalin. He, he called him the mustached one uh, and in a private letter, and that's why he was thrown in, in the gulag for eight years, because if you can mock someone, if you can mock authority, if you can mock your rulers, that's a, it's a little act of um, independence and defiance. And, and it... This is coming to Canada now. In B.C., there was a comedian named Guy Earl, who was at a comedy club, and he got into an argument with some hecklers who happened to be lesbian, and they threw water at him, and they were heckling him, and they were making out right in the front row. Well, if you're going to a comedy club, and you're going to sit in the front row, and you're going to make a scene, get ready for the comedian to pick on you. Anyhow, they went at it, and he, he said some jokes that weren't really funny at all about those lesbians, and instead of just brushing it off, they took him to the B.C. Human Rights Tribunal, and he has a trial there in September. 
as to whether or not his jokes were funny. <laughs> I mean, the government will now have a hearing as to whether or not his jokes were funny. I mean, this is so absurd. Do we need a government joke tester now? And and who will it be? I mean, what if we disagree with the government's sense of humor, which I, I'm certain we will? It, the fact that this hearing is being had, and this comedian lives in Toronto, he's got to fly all the way across the country at his own expense. I mean, don't you think it's time to shut these commissions down? Would Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi, two people I associate with human rights, would they say, oh, yes, a trial about jokes, whether or not they're funny, this is very much my legacy? No, they wouldn't. They'd be appalled. Yeah, it's it's actually not very funny, is it? <laughs> but, um, listen, we've only got a couple minutes to wrap up. And tell me if I've got this right. Basically, don't want to leave the folks. Uh, first of all, let's do a reminder in case we run out of time. April 13th, 2009, 7 p.m., at the London City Music Theatory here in London, 316 Rec- Rectory Street. Five bucks at the door. You can see Ezra Levant, Kathy Shadle, and Salim Mansour that night. And there will be copies of his book, Shakedown, available. I'm sure of that. Right, eh, Ezra? That's right. That'll be the case. Now, <coughs> tell me if I've got this right. This is basically the main things you think that we should do as the quick solution, single words. You expand on them in your book. But basically... Um, I, I counted out seven points that I picked, and he, here they are. Number one, refuse to grant to HRCs the moral high ground. Number two, distinguish between real and fake rights. Number three, take back the language. Uh, number four, distinguish between a right and a freedom. Number five, uphold freedom of speech. Um, I like what you said there. You can always ignore a racist. You can't escape from the government. That's very true. Number six, um, basically talking about Western values and rule of law and defining those things. And number seven, my favorite, weeding out HRCs entirely. Of course, there's two schools of thoughts about that. Where, How would you leave it? Which of those are the most important, the ones you'd think people should focus on, or uh, am I even going in the wrong direction here? <laughs> well, look, we're not going to win this unless we actually change the laws, because uh, Salim's point about these, maybe these bureaucrats would just simply stop enforcing the law, that's not going to happen, because that's what these people do. They're radical activists. They're not fair-minded judges. So until we can actually weed out these human rights commissions by getting our lawmakers to change the law, we're doomed. So we've got to keep raising a fuss about it until our politicians can't ignore this anymore. And that's where the book comes in. That's where public events come in. That's where radio talk shows like this come in. We've got to raise the temperature on this issue so politicians make it an issue. And um, it's slowly happening, but we've got more work to do on that. Now, I, I heard you comment quick, very briefly, uh, you were saying that uh, one of the Human Rights Commissions are trying to brush up their act and clean it up. Isn't that a bit of a danger if they start uh, cleaning up their act a bit? Because if they leave the extreme cases alone, people might be complacent again. Yeah, they, they hope that the fuss will die down and they can go back to picking on little people. And I thought they were doing that, but then again, just last week, they appealed their loss against a former MP named Jim Pankew. So they're getting political again, they're getting censorious again. I'm really surprised by that, because I thought they were smart enough to let some of the noisy fish go, but they're not. So I think it's, it's up to politicians to rein them in, because they're not going to behave themselves. I, I think you're, you're absolutely right there, and that's the only way to go. Looks like our time's up now. We're going to have to wrap the show up. I want to thank both of you today. Thank you, Salim, for joining me thank again you. in the studio. Thank you, Ezra. 
My for spending the better part of the hour with us. And I hope uh, we'll all get to see each other, I guess, on Monday. And hopefully those of you listening to the show, some of you will come out to see the event again at the London City Music Theatre, 7 p.m. April 13th here in London at the Western Fairgrounds. Uh, and that's it for this week. So let's take it away, and I hope you will again join us again in our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, do right, act right, stay right, and think right. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the So I'm English. I'm English. I don't speak French at all. Right? Growing up in Montreal, I was always trying to avoid situations where I had to speak French, which was hard, you know, because my family was... Uh, French. <laughs>